0: Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that records while men make us delicious cookies. Specifically, peanut butter chocolate chip oatmeal cookies. Oh Oh my my god. (laughs) Smelling it. (laughs) Today we have Laura. And Hope. And we are also joined by two incredible guests. We have Writers Guild of America East, organizer Megan McRobert, and Jezebel Senior Editor Katie McDonough. Welcome, and thank you both for being on Season of the Bitch. Ooh, hey, thanks for having. Yeah, thanks hey. for having
1: us. Awesome. Yeah, thank you.
0: Um, so a few weeks ago, we were approached by a representative from the Writers Guild of America who wondered if we'd want to have a discussion with these two incredible women, and I was like... How is this even a question? Um, so here we are, and we're thankful
1: to the guild for even thinking of us. So I thought, we yeah, were... no, oh yeah, please. I'm long time listener, first time caller. Very excited to be here. So thank you for having us. Yay, Aww. yay.
0: Things like that kind of make my head spin, but I'm pretty <laughs> stoked about it. Um, so let's start with some introductions. Megan, can you give us a little background on yourself and then tell us what your role is at WGA and what WGA actually is?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm a union organizer. I'm on staff at the Writers Guild of America East. And yeah, thinking about about this podcast and realizing that my first sort of foray into the labor movement was um, when I was an undergrad, I went to Smith College as an undergrad and majored in the study of women and gender. So it's been also exciting to think through the ways in which union organizing and, and feminist organizations work- organizing in theory have been, um, yeah, part of my life for well over a decade now. But so I was organizing, doing some student organizing on campus, and the uh, kitchen and dining workers were unionized at Smith. And, you know, lo and behold, the benevolent liberal institution was, you know, acting like typical bosses at the bargaining table. And so, um, because I had done some student organizing, you know, some of the union, union members of the SEIU chapter that they were a part of reached out to student organizers on campus to say, like, hey, this is, what we're this is what we're dealing with and at this point I don't remember all the specific demands but I remember what stuck out to me is that they were asking for a few more bereavement days in the event of the death of a family member and that had become a really a major sticking point Mm. um, for a union that had you know more than 75 percent membership were women at an institution that was historically um, about the education and empowerment of people we've historically described as women so so anyway that was my first that was my first campaign and what really stuck with me is that we won you know the workers Mm -hmm. won a bunch of stuff partly because students started threatening to do stuff during commencement and do these sort of public shaming of of the school about how they were treating um its own women workers Mm -hmm. and this was right around the time that you know sort of the early 2000s when the latest iteration of the Iraq war was kicking up and had done the the teach-ins and the anti-war protests and so I had this moment too where i realized that this really deep history of the labor movement people had on the left had figured out how to win things um, in a really tangible way at a time when i was really looking for that and struggling for, you know, where are the places on the left where people are taking on the issues that matter to me, but also actually, you know, winning and changing changing people's material conditions. So that was sort of my first, you know, explicitly uh, my first labor experience, and you know, had kind of a post-undergrad journey that included a uh, working at a rape crisis center and going to graduate school, and so most recently being back in New York City for about five or six years, you know, really came back to the union organizing world, frankly, because it's one of the few places where you can make a living in New York City and have Mm -hmm. your job title be organizer. Um, And so I've, I've been at the Writers Guild for about two and a half years and previously was organizing doctors through an SCIU local Mm. and so yeah so my role at the at the Writers Guild as a union organizer is I work with people um, across the digital media industry and sort of at different phases of the process the most common thing that people think about for a union organizer is working with people to form a union for the first time in a in a workplace that isn't currently unionized and then continuing to work with people when they negotiate first union contracts or or subsequent contracts and um and also you know organizing when there's a contract in place, organizing around workplace and industry and political issues that, that may or may not have gotten addressed in the union contract. Mm. And then what would the other and then yeah in terms of what the writers guild actually is, the writers guild is is a union with over well, so I'll say first the writers, there's the writers guild east and writers guild west, and they're distinct entities but work together to negotiate um, a common contract called the minimum basic agreement. And so, the historic membership of, of the writers guild it was founded as the screenwriters guild in the 30s, so mm. it was sc- screenwriters coming together like explicitly as a response to the studio system where people were grappling with questions of creative control, whether that's you know, trying to get subversive elements into movies or just who got paid for what work. And mm-hmm. so, you know, eventually, you know, the West was founded and the East was founded, you know, based in um, L.A. and New York City, respectively. And so, again, the historic membership of, of the Writers Guild has been in scripted film and television. And so today that includes, you know, a movie you might see in the movie theater, a show you might watch on Amazon, but um, also includes a, a number of people in in journalism and media, whether that's, you know, broadcast news like CBS and ABC or digital media like, um, HuffPost, Jezebel, Vice, um, that sort of thing. So sorry if that was a lot, but that's, no, sorry.
2: Yeah. (laughs) It's a perfect amount. Yes. Mm -hmm. Amazing.
0: Thank you. And Katie, do you want to give us some background on yourself? Um, what you're currently doing or working on and talk about Jezebel a little bit.
2: Sure. Um, So yeah, I'm a senior editor at Jezebel. It is the best place. I love it. I basically oversee the political coverage there for Mm. the most part. Um, I work with like a really excellent team of writers and editors to just figure out what covering this administration and and state-level stuff and kind of more community-based stuff, like a range of things that are going on right now. And there's, like, never a shortage of shit. So it's a lot. Before, I've been pretty much doing political journalism since I got into journalism. So working at a few different places. But, yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like Megan has, like, such a storied history. And mine is, like, I went to college and saw that journalism could be like, you could be nosy for a living. And I was like, oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> cool. And then that's, that's pretty much how it happened.
1: I love that. I have to say, i I was explaining, I've, I've had several conversations with various people in my life about what it means to be a union organizer. And one day my dad looked at me and he goes, did you just figure out how to gossip and talk back for a living? I was like, yes. And also we make, <laughs> we make plans and lists. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it's one of the joys of organizing journalists as they are, they're nosy, a nosy inquisitive bunch.
2: Yes. Um, yeah. So I guess that's sort of, I mean, I can give you, <laughs> you know, we can just talk and talk about all of the weird shit that you encounter as like a woman in journalism, but yeah, like I, I think Jezebel does something really unique. I, I, before I worked there, I loved reading Jezebel. So I think it is like just holds a really unique place in the culture and I really like the kind of perfect mix of really serious reporting that I think it we do better than anywhere and Mm. also like being a bunch of like feral freaks that do totally weird stuff and it all fits together pretty harmoniously in a way that I think you know it really works so I I, it's a it's a good gig I think
0: yeah Mm. absolutely Jezebel's amazing If you don't know, listeners, now you know. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you both for sharing. So the Writers Guild of America uh, East, you know, and West and collectively is so large in scope. And Mm -hmm. there's, you know, you cover folks from the Jimmy Fallon show to, you know, some of these leftist writers that we see and, you know, that we support. And I'm just curious about how fitting leftism into such a potentially
1: mainstream organization works? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that's been so exciting about being an organizer at the Writers Guild is that there is a really long history of militancy within Writers Guild memberships. There's um, a a long history of guilds and unions in the entertainment industry. So So, you know, there's a Writers Guild, an Editor's Guild, Director's Guild, there's different unions for people doing different crew work. And so within that group, you know, Writers Guild is definitely known as one of the unions that has historically gone on strike to raise working standards in the industry. And so something that's become really interesting to me recently is seeing these sorts of through lines from the founding of the Writers Guild and the um, the issues that people have taken on like there's incredible turmoil during McCarthyism like at, at one point on the governing body of the Writers Guild East, there was someone who was blacklisted and someone who named names who you wow. know were on the same but, you know and so this really you know so it's not to romanticize any of the history and to say um, you know, that it has been without conflict or tension, but you know most recently Writers Guild members went on strike in two thousand and eight a lot of People may remember the year that their shows went off the air and there weren't late night shows and all of a sudden there were a bunch of reality TV shows. And that was largely, that was because Writers Guild members, and here I'm talking about scripted film and television writers working within um, the minimum basic agreement. So it's a a three-year contract that sets minimums for everything from, you know, writers on the Jimmy Fallon show to, you know, the writers of Spotlight. Um, And... One of the driving principles behind the strike in 2008 was people saw that the internet was becoming a place where money was being made and film and television were being distributed. And even though people didn't necessarily know in 2007, 2008, the kind, you know, sort of what we'd be looking at in 2018, people did say, saw the writing on the wall and said, this is a thing and we, we want to get paid if our work is distributed on the internet instead of you know, over television or a movie theater. Mm. And so by going on strike, you know, the, the official term is you know, one jurisdiction over digital video streaming. And so you know, you see shows on Amazon, on Netflix, on Hulu. The people who wrote that are are getting paid for that work because um, because they went on strike. And so it's a really, ex- you know, a union that has not been afraid to go on strike and has also seen the ways in which technology changes and the economy changes, and that means that workplaces change and industries change, and and unions have to change as a result if we're going to, you know, continue to exist. You know, so so that said, right, like every union is an institution. And, you know, we see it in feminism, we see it in the political process. Like when movements become institutionalized, there is often sort of a mainstreaming that happens. And so one of the things that I think is is most core for me as a union organizer is thinking about the work that I do as a unionist is you're rooted in being an organizing unionist and not a service unionist. And so what that looks like is developing really strong member leaders um, and fundamentally facilitating a process where workers come together to take action and change their Working conditions and rather than people coming to me and saying, I have this problem, and then it's my job to call HR and fix it. Mm. Um, sometimes it is my job, right? But it's always, you know, how does each individual task add up to more worker control of their working conditions? Rather than because you know, when I go on vacation as I did earlier this week to the mountains for three days, things things will come up. And if it all depends on me, then it falls apart when I right. when I go out of town. But also fundamentally to get back yeah, to the question of of what it looks like to fit leftism into a potentially mainstream organization. I think for me it's remembering that we're that I work for a union mm-hmm. <laughs> and what it is that unions do and making sure that what I do adds up to these sort of guiding principles of like why why unions even exist and what they what they can accomplish uh, when they're when they're at their best.
2: Awesome. Yeah. And I think just to jump in too, that like my experience of being a writer's guild member has like always been that like my experience of the union itself has has been very alive to me and less sort of like and maybe this is just sort of because I don't I mean I learn more about its history all the time, but like the way that I experience it is, and the way that I experience it with my colleagues is, is always immediately connected to like the, the conditions that we're facing, the like issues that we're bringing forward, the like campaigns that we're launching. So it feels really like the way organizing through writers, the Writers Guild has felt very connected to those politics by, just by as a consequence of like, it's just the piece of it that I'm in. So my union looks like what our priorities are. Um, like in mm-hmm. how we work through it and how we use it as a tool. So I know it often, I sometimes forget how big it is. Um, and I forget that like the digital media component is not like the entire writer's guild. Um, <laughs> and that's just my own myopia sometimes, but it does really feel alive and responsive and dynamic to me for that reason. Cause it's such an engaged part of it. And so now it's kind of connecting back to this history that Megan's describing of just, it's alive to me, you know? It's amazing.
0: It's actually like a really beautiful way of thinking about union organizing in general. And it seems like that is kind of the goal. So.
2: Oh, man. Yeah. I will get so (laughs) sentimental about unions. Just let me. (laughs) Just
0: just (laughs) cue me up.
2: That's
0: amazing.
3: (laughs) So I have a question for Katie. Can you talk a little bit about walking the line between satire and leftism? You have an article talking about Jezebel's decision to hire a cannibal witch, which was fantastic. And we kind of just wanted to know, what was your process like?
2: So the process was that I had just had a good conversation with one of Jezebel's really incredible writers, Stasa Edwards, about a piece that we wanted to run on Kevin Williamson having been let go from The Atlantic and, like, Mm -hmm. that calculation that, like, Jeffrey Goldberg is making in that moment about taking this man whose entire public profile has been built around, like, racism, classism, transphobia, and then saying that at this moment of like you know sort of like steroid level racism classism transphobia in our country that he had somehow become like an ideal what did he say he was like he's ideologically homeless at the moment and I was like that's truly bizarre to me right. um so like after Stasa started working on the piece that she put up and then I then edited called Believe the Provocateur like my next kind of impulse was like okay how do we make fun of this because it's so dumb like it's so embarrassing and and cynical and like you can kind of see so I like being able to engage with stuff on on kind of multiple levels I think Mm. that uh so I don't know it really was just like I went to talk to a couple of my colleagues and I was like we should make fun of this and I think that we should like pretend that we hired someone really egregious and that like we've now like reconsidered and I was like what's the most egregious Thing that I can kind of think of and it was like this cannibal witch who had like had a long public profile of of talking about eating children um it sounds so <laughs> dumb it sounds so dumb saying it out loud no no, no. Like, and it's and amazing it but um <laughs> it was just it took a very short amount of time I will tell you that that my process was maybe 20 minutes and then it just was up and I love that it sat kind of in the same sort of critical space as Stasas so really, I think, like, elegant and cutting essay and that, like, we could kind of be hitting stuff from multiple angles and sides. Oh, wow. um, and then I got someone, I forget who picked it up. There was some, like, very, there was, like, a conservative religious Facebook group that picked it up and they were, like, what, like, Jezebel thinks this is funny. It's not funny to <laughs> oh, talk about eating, eating children. <laughs> and I was, like, oh, wow cool like <laughs> really it's like impact journalism stuff is really happening here it's really intense um, but yeah sorry go ahead no
0: I, yeah there is a, there is the christian right that would actually be nervous about that but i think like it's kind of amazing that line to walk because well particularly you know if y'all are like me it's so nice to have a break from the intense Shit show hellscape that we're constantly reading about, and still point to the shithole hellscape, but do it in a way that I'm like, okay, I can still breathe, and like, we're here.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's totally it. And it's hard because it can't, like, it can be hard sometimes to find like a moment to just go light on yourself, like, as you're experiencing something Mm -hmm. that like is pretty crushing. But like, I think that the thing that I like so much about some of my favorite writing and writers is always like people who can figure out what that line looks like and walk it and like try to land a punch in both ways. Like I, I yes. think that like, okay. so it, yeah, like when it really works, it, it feels cause yeah, if it's too, if it's too heavy all the time, I, I think you just sort of like, you just can't handle it. Like no person can handle that 24 hours a day every day, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's a nice <laughs> thing to be able to do that and get, somehow to have people think that that's normal to to write that piece and to to, to publish it. So I feel fortunate for that. Yeah.
3: I think another thing that happens a lot now is just that there's a ton of people who a lot of their identity is in social media, you know, like hot takes about things. So no matter what you put out there, somebody may like be, you know, very, very offended about it, just like in an effort (laughs) to generate more traffic for themselves. Um, and then oftentimes, like, there's some, like, reports about, like, the controversy that's created by this small group of people being unfairly outraged about, you know, something that was obviously satire. So it seems like that happens a lot, too.
2: Yeah, people are, like, good at having n- not a sense of humor, I've found, but, like. <laughs> <laughs> you do say. Like, really yeah, funny and mean, way to put it. <laughs> I'm sure that you have never encountered such a thing, so you would not, you would not know. But um, yeah, I mean, no. it's like, I think that in terms of one thing that I like about being an editor at this moment is being able to, like, work with writers. And sometimes, because, like, in the same way that there's such heavy stuff, I also think that there's sometimes, like, bad stuff that often, like, you know, when Barry Weiss writes something at the New York Times and, like, mm this gets this platform and has this profile. And so then there's this sort of like reflexive idea that like every word she writes has to be taken so seriously. And I I do think that there's so much important work being done that like will take down like bad faith cynical arguments like line by line but then I also think that I'm sometimes just like hey and sometimes it's not that deep and sometimes it's bad in ways that are familiar and that Mm. we don't have to like you don't have to labor every single time to kind of be like no I really need to like grapple with this line by line I think that sometimes being dismissive like being like making a joke about cannibal witch and this is of course not like you can't consistently do this like it's not always the right tone or method or whatever but I do think that there should be room for being, like, this is not that deep, and I can, like, kind of mess around with it, you know?
0: Definitely. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Something I've been
1: thinking about, you know, one of our most recent... Organizing campaign to go public is the is Onion Inc., which includes you know the Onion and Clickhole, um, as well as AV Club and their and their you know, video producers, and so it's a number of people. But you know, thinking through, sort of, we've used Onion articles in organizing campaigns before. I like think one of my favorite all time. Onion headlines as employee uprising quelled by free pizza, because we've literally used it in almost every organizing campaign. When there's an anti-union campaign, there's usually coincidentally like free pizza or all of a sudden like a team happy hour. And so also like looking at the ways in which people who are, you know, writing satire and doing it are sort of skewering these, these power dynamics in a pretty concise way that we don't always, we're not always good at messaging on the left. We're not always good at messaging in the labor movement, but you have these like devastatingly funny headlines where people that sort of illuminate this dynamic. And so it's been really interesting to, you know, to work with the people who are, who are writing that and to think through, you know, sort of how their, their work is, is satire or, you know, for many of them it's satire and comedy. Um, And that's really been a logical connection for many of them with the, the work that they're doing to, to unionize their workplace.
0: Mm.
3: Quick follow-up question from that one, just more generally. We want to know, what have been your favorite projects so far?
2: Oh, so I think one of the things that I feel really fortunate about with my job, um, before I was at Dezebel, I was at Splinter, so still within Gizmodo Media Group, is that I like being at a place where, like, I can go, like, doing reporting on, like, illegal syringe exchange in Iowa City and, like, spending time in a community where people recognize that there are gaps in the law that like are you know preventing mm-hmm. them from taking care of themselves and one another and working around it and being able to kind of tell that story you know and similarly like I feel really lucky that my reporting has taken me to all sorts of different places both like in New York City and around the country we're just like I am really interested in this question of how people take care of themselves in the absence of of policies that I think seem really straightforward, like having, like, harm reduction and, and, and clean needle exchanges being legal. You know, I think looking at immigration policy within New York City and looking at the ways in which Sanctuary City is still, like, using the NYPD as a sort of booster and enforcement for ICE and the way that our social services in the city are being impacted by, like, Undocumented women who are now fearful about uh, like seeking emergency shelter in our domestic violence um, shelters. There was a mm-hmm. piece that I did not too long ago about that, and and so I feel fortunate that there is a sort of room and respect at GMG to be able to kind of do these to do stories of these different kinds of speeds, and then turn it around totally and do something that feels really really light or funny. Because I think for a while, like I think a lot of women journalists probably feel this sense of like oh god I have to really make sure that people take me really seriously and so for a long time early in my like reporting and writing I didn't want to be I didn't want to be funny and I didn't want to make jokes because I was like well if I'm a political reporter and I do something that's funny then no one will take me seriously Mm. as a political reporter and like I don't know I mean I just have kind of let that go because I just don't like, I don't want to have to pick, I guess. So of course. You're feel, vast. You contain multitudes. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I feel really glad that the, I have a, a job or, like, a career that I'm able to kind of play around with both. But, yeah, I just, I do think that there's, like, in all of my reporting and writing the through line is this this question of, like, of kind of care and tenderness in the face of of really violent and indifferent systems. So, those are, yeah, that's usually my projects that I that I feel most proud of are are, are focused on that. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so we are going to take a quick music break, and we'll keep talking about this stuff when we get back. You're- you not giving all I got Again, I at least hope, maybe this is an assumption, but I hope that our listeners are on board with unionization. But it may be helpful for folks who may have to have certain talking points, say if they're discussing journalism with their, their conservative parents or something. And, you know, I know that this is also specific to organizing in the digital industry as well. Um, And so maybe kind of talking about it on the specific level and then on the more broader context of the labor movement.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenge, frankly, still one of my biggest challenges as a union organizer is remembering that it's about like listening and relationship building more than it is about like arguing and convincing because I'm, I'm talkative and I'm opinionated and I, I like, you know, and so remembering that when someone is coming from a place of skepticism or a place of, of anti-unionism, that it It may not even work necessarily to to argue with someone. And you know it comes up in organizing campaigns. It comes up at like family dinners. But you know what we sort of coach people on when they're starting to talk with their colleagues about organizing is you know what does it look like to ask someone sort of like, what are your issues in the workplace? like what if something was different, um, how would it make your day-to-day life easier or better? Or what would need to change for you to imagine staying in this industry for for years? And there's like different like ways to frame that, but fundamentally it's like rooted in this belief that everybody has issues. Um, everybody has something um that they would want to change. And it's sort of connecting those to like what are the root causes of of those issues and sort of talking people through a, a process where you start to identify like what is the problem and and what is the solution. But I think also like specifically in this industry, what I hear both from people who are working in the industry and people who are not is I hear a lot of, well, you know, unions are for lazy workers or unions are only for people that are you know, physically endangered their job. And there's like a lot that goes into all of that, um, you know. And so, also trying to be really aware of and talk people through the sort of myths that underlie our beliefs that professional workers are not workers, right? Or are mm-hmm. not ever exploited. Um, right. And so, not you know, being, taking good care to not obscure the different layers of economic precarity experienced by different workers, whether that's because of, you know, race, gender, class, industry, but at the same time, sort of being able to say, you know, some of the examples that I give to people who are like, well, what do journalists need a union for? Um, it's, you know, pointing to the sort of volatility in the industry, that, you know, I've seen people with kids get laid off and, you know, talking them through their health insurance options. Like, that's a real, that's real. And so I think, yeah, and it's something that I have to remember constantly. And Katie is, like, really, really brilliant at doing this with colleagues. So I should definitely chime in. But that it's, like, sitting and, and getting to know someone and figuring out what does resonate for them rather than assuming, you know, here's the one argument that's going to convince everyone.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, because
1: maybe, you know, maybe it's a, like, you know i I've, I've heard from people who have said look my parents are really skeptical of unions because of the racism that they experienced as, like from union you know and so it's like totally. you know, mm-hmm. don't you know it's like being also like i've sometimes been like oh i've got the i've got the thing that's going to convince them and then i'm just also totally missing the mark on like what they're actually saying mm-hmm. when they say i don't support unions or i don't support unions in this industry so yeah and i think yeah i mean you know Katie and I first started working together when Infusion was organizing like a, a while ago and I know had to have got to have a number of conversations <laughs> with with people like since then.
2: Yeah, I mean it was it's interesting cuz like Megan said it's a lot of listening and figuring out where people are coming from and letting them kind of bring whether whatever their hesitation or like background might be that they're is, like, leading to skepticism or reluctance to sign a card or get involved in an organizing campaign. And I think that, like, one thing that I hear a lot or have heard a lot is, you know, in addition to what Megan has described, which is, I think, this reflexive tendency to think that, like, the lazy workers need unions thing, which is, like, just pretty pretty heartbreaking to hear repeated, Mm -hmm. like, how people have internalized that because they've, you know, there's like been a campaign to message on that for, for quite a long time. And it's been really successful (laughs) to convince people that that's like what the case is. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But that Mm -hmm. also like particularly in journalism, people are really There are a lot of reporters who are really cautious and vigilant about this question of like, well, I'm not an activist and I'm a journalist. And there's a difference between, so I don't want to become, I don't want to become involved with a union, even though I know that there's obviously like a a large historical precedent here to have journalists unionized. I think that some people see it as sort of activist-y. It makes them a sort of interested party in a movement. So I have had conversations with people where the editorial independence that, like, a contract secures is a really, like, useful thing to, to, to help them understand, like, as, like, the sort of rise of, like, billionaire hobbyists and, like, private equity in journalism who that really can impact what gets written and what gets said, that, like, having fierce editorial protections locked in with a contract and having a really active and organized union that's ready to be vigilant if any of that gets messed with, like, that's very straightforward and, and very core to the sort of more, you know, I think like conservatively read traditional project of what journalism is, right. Which is just like independent reporting and, and not getting like not having a boss who can dictate what gets published. So there's just, I think there's all kinds of ways into, I think, cause I, you know, I'm from New York and my parents, like I grew up in a union household. So it was interesting to learn, more just about how people are not familiar. I mean, like, I had colleagues in Florida, like, and who who live in right-to-work states who don't have the same experience of, like, just kind of knowing unions from being around unions. And it really is, like, a it's an interesting thing to, like, meet them kind of where they're at and talk through just what they think they need. Or if it's they have a really positive experience at work, then it's this, well, what do you want to lock down about what really works for you at your company? Like, it's just been a really it's been a, it's a it's a really interesting process to to just talk to people about it cuz there is there's like a million different you know perspectives hesitations interests that like bring people to this to this question of organizing and and so it's been really cool to be able to kind of be an audience to it totally mm-hmm.
1: i think also something that i that i underestimated previously is just the value of even demystifying like what a union is and what mm. the process is because it's become such a shorthand right like katie had said there's uh, been a lot of money and time and effort put into like making union a bad word um and so just even being able to talk with people like about here's here's what we do like and here's what i do on a day-to-day basis and sometimes that's like i think i'm pretty i've pretty sure that I've gotten one of my uncles to stop asking me how much commission I made on membership this month. Um, It's just like, it's like, okay, no, I don't sell insurance to journalists, right? Like I work with people to like come together and um, negotiate a contract or to take action in the workplace. And so it's just even like people that support the idea of, of a union don't even necessarily know, like, what, what that means. And so it's also just, like, talking with people about that has been, yeah, it's been interesting, because I take it for granted, and I think we can take it for granted on the left that there's a shared understanding, right, of terms or of movement history.
2: Yeah, or, like, the idea of, like, the union as interloper, like, the kind of, like, I mean, it's, like, pretty standard anti-union talking points at this point, but, like, being like, do you really want someone, like, getting in our way and, like, mingling in our shit? And I'm like, you're the union. Like, I mean, it's, like, it's it's hard, because it is. It's, like, you, this comes up a lot, because there, there is this idea somehow that, like, people don't, that they're somehow giving away control as opposed to taking it, Um, which I've heard again and again and just it sounds like it just is it's just that I inside like my own union when as we're organizing and and choosing kind of like campaigns that we want to pursue or issues that we want to bring to the to management's attention like there's sometimes internal concern about like well what if this happens without my say or what if this kind of and it's like no like we're the union like we get to pick right like we get to prioritize and we get to decide like the things that we do only work if they work collectively so like we get to decide and so there's this interesting thing where people I think sometimes approach the idea as if it's going to be somehow like super disempowering and like this sort of like you're surrendering yourself to a bureaucratic system that has very little to do with you um when it's it's like my experience of it and has been the complete opposite and so it's been interesting to see that piece of it too. Mm
0: -hmm. Totally. I feel like in also in different fields, different type of cultures are really ingrained. And I previously was in academia, I was a PhD student, and I was unionized. But our union was essentially defunct, which is a whole different story. But a lot of what I encountered in academia was, oh, yeah, everyone just works all the time. That's like what being... A teaching assistant is. That's what being a professor is. And I I could see it going really similarly in writing um, and in journalism in particular. And I think that I'm just kind of so falling out because I hadn't really thought about this. <laughs> I think that mm-hmm. that's its own barrier for some people. Um, totally. Where they're like, oh, well, we've chose this field because we knew and we knew what we were going to into and we get it. And I'm just like, wait, pump the brakes. Cause that's not
2: how it needs to be. Wow. Yeah. It's so, it's so real though. And that goes so deep for some people where like, there's almost this like romantic notion of what are actually just fundamentally bad working conditions. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's mm-hmm. not like romantic or like a cool, like, you know, like in olden days, it was like, you know, it's like, no, those were, those were like, poor working conditions and poor working standards and this idea that like you needed to be doing x y or z to be like a good hard worker or a good journalist like that's some shit you've internalized after a long time of like allowing this industry to be very precarious to the idea that like my first my first job in journalism I was making thirty thousand dollars a year and like living in New York City and that those two things don't add up super well Mm. you know but I was like man it's like my foot in the door and like I felt lucky because I didn't go to you know, graduate school. And I was like, man, so yeah, I like have a a salary that is low, but look, I'm like, don't have debt. And so you just like justify all this stuff to yourself, you know, about like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. And I think that, that it really runs deep in people and some of their hesitation or like skepticism is like really just internalized, like, no, but this bad thing or this precarious thing, or like, it's just normal. And it's, it's really not. And we don't Mm -hmm. actually have to think of it that way. Mm -hmm.
3: And I think especially for fields like journalism where people, you know, there's a certain amount of like nobility to it and maybe people feel like suffering is just part of what you get when you choose that path. I imagine that might be kind of a hard thing to overcome with some people.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like and that is where I do feel like obviously unions are powerful political tools this is a you know like this is part of something that is broader and larger than just the writer skill that is certainly broader and larger than just digital media like but I do think that the piece that I feel really drawn to and feel really satisfied by is also the the social and community components of like getting to that place with my colleagues where like being like well what have we accepted as normal or what feels like too ambitious or like biting the hand that feeds like what are the things that we want to come to together or start talking about in ways that we'd never thought through before because it was just like, oh, that's just the way that it is. I feel like it's been a really, like, that piece of organizing and that piece of being a member of, of what I consider to be a really strong union, not just the Writers Guild, but the GMG union specifically, like, I feel really proud of the work that we do together because it really is interrogating some of that stuff and trying to get ambitious to make this industry better, to make our workplace better, to make the industry better, to Kind of expand the horizons of what people think that they should they deserve, I guess, in a job. Mm -hmm. See, I'm sentimental. This is the sentimental direction (laughs) that I was going to go in. I love uh, it. I love it.
3: A lot of how I experience it. So, here's another question I have. Y'all know obviously that we focus on issues through a feminist lens on our podcast, and uh, we know that gender bias is a huge issue in every field and pretty much every aspect of life. And I understand that your fields are no exception. So just wondering, can you discuss kind of the organizing against sexual violence in your industry that you've been doing on this and what your thoughts are on that?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, something that was just uh, occurring to me when, when Katie was talking is the ways in which um, yeah, these internalized narratives about power and self worth and our, our position in the world come out in union organizing and partly because of the world that we live in, our our value as workers and the value of what we do or don't produce is so like intimately tied to how we're seen as Worthful or worthless. And some of the most intense experiences that I've had as a union organizer is when I get to see someone go from the process where they're internalizing something to able to see like, no, this is happening to other people and it's not, it's not my fault. The system has, has failed all of us and we're going to work together to change that. And so I've gotten to have those conversations where people have been, you know, denied fair raises over and over again and say to me, right. I've talked to multiple people who are like crying, like what is wrong with me? I'm a failure. And talking with them about like, this is happening to other people. It's not acceptable. It's not your fault. And if people work together, you can negotiate a contract where there's transparency around around pay and around raises and mm. so really seeing the that as like a core core element of union organizing and so organizing against sexual violence and sexual harassment we've we've taken up in the last 6 months or so really explicitly but i've always you know really thought of or you know in the last 6 months at least have frankly have thought about it as part of this broader project of moving from you know, these isolated experiences where people blame themselves to, you know, these collective, you know, to, to taking collective action to change those. And sort of the key task of coming together as a union is, like, you know, like I said, moving from those isolated experiences to, um, to changing them through collective action. But also, you know, it's explicitly a workplace issue as well. So there are there's these sort of ideological and political connections that I'm trying to hold on to, but also it's people aren't safe at work. People are leaving mm-hmm. industries because they're experiencing violence, whether that's online harassment, whether that's a peer-to-peer issue, whether that's an abusive manager or all of the above at at a certain time. And so so yeah, we're trying to sort of balance yeah, that it's partly specifically about taking this issue head on, but it's also taking the issue within the broader context of, like, what an organizing union does, which is come together to change conditions that are, like, exploiting
2: and hurting people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it has been just another example of where I feel, again, that, like, organizing and being a member of a union has been a really dynamic and very, like, living experience for me because it was, like, we were all responding to news as it was breaking, and we were all engaged in reporting and editing on stories about, you know, as the Weinstein stuff is is coming out, as all of these sort of high-profile screaming cases are coming out, and then this larger conversation about the way that women in more precarious industries that are not Hollywood, right, the way that this is kind of across industry and experience, and who's, it's just a lot of work to do. And so this became another moment where colleagues and like other people across at different shops that are not Jezebel, that are not DMG, like had similar questions about like, how do we create structures to like support one another as journalists? Like how do we support each other in the work that we're doing? I think as more people are focusing on stories about sexual violence, like how do we make sure that the reporting is strong? How do we make sure that reporters going into covering this issue have this sort of interview skills and the ability to kind of just do this work in the way that is thorough and and gives it the sort of, just, yeah, the, like, care and attention that it needs. So some of that has been what that organizing has looked like, and then some of it is very workplace-focused, right? So then there's the piece of approaching it as journalists and the piece of approaching it as workers, and it's, like, what do our internal systems look like for reporting? Do people feel comfortable? Um, Do, like, certain people feel less comfortable than others about going through traditional reporting channels? Um, What does it look like? I mean, it's been very much like a coming together because there's clear work to do Mm -hmm. um with our in our industry but also because it's again this I do feel this like component of like solidarity and social care of being like okay we're all like taking a lot of this shit in at the same time and like how are we doing and are we like do we like need more from one another to do it well and so that's definitely been a part of my experience at least just speaking for myself of like what this this additional or like this kind of component of the work has, has been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And just, you know, to add just a, a union-specific, like, layer of, of considerations or of when we're organizing around this and that a lot of unions are grappling with is, you know, all union members have a right to representation. And so what does it, you know, what is our what is my role as a union organizer if and when there is a, a conflict or an allegation between two union members? And what does it look like for me to like I'm I'm a worker too, I'm a I'm a queer woman in the world and, and have thoughts and feelings and also like have a job that I'm, you know, paid to do that I take really seriously. And so I also just don't, you know, I'm I'm really proud of of the work that we're doing and I think it's really, really vibrant and really important. And I also, you know, I'm aware of the of the complications and it's a really incredible moment to be able to be honest with each other about all those things and just sort of look at each other. And like we were having, we were having a small group meeting about an event that we're planning around specifically around the issue of sexual violence in media. And someone was like, what if we just call it? it's complicated you're not alone you know that we're able to just sort of say like we don't know what to do we haven't we don't live in a world where we figured out how to end you know sexual violence and all of the elements of oppression and trauma that create that violence but we're going to work together to build communities of of accountability and of trust and of mutual aid, whether that's around economic issues in the workplace or issues of violence in the workplace. And that's a really beautiful, wonderful thing. And it's also hard and complicated. And we all bring our, our broken selves, our traumatized selves to the work. And so sure. it's something that I've just tried to be really, really honest about instead of you know, as union organizers, we're trained to be like, you have an issue. The solution is organizing your workplace. And someone when someone says I'm being harassed, and there's already a union in my workplace, it's, you know, it can be a scary thing as a union organizer when you don't have like the immediate solution. But people are really grappling with these with these questions in and honest and and meaningful ways. And I'm, I'm excited to see where where it goes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess, If you have any information about any ongoing campaigns that we could link to for our listeners, let us know. So if any, if you need any like outside help, just people in the streets or whatever, we can hopefully help provide that.
1: Mm -hmm. That Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I will say you follow. Writers Guild on Twitter, WGA East. And then there are also like Katie has sort of mentioned a couple, there's the GMG union, which is the Gizmodo media group. So just as like a point of clarification, there's a number of digital media companies that have unionized and they sort of function like small local chapters of the Writers Guild. So there's the HuffPost union, the Vox Media union, the Onion union, the GMG union. Um, And people have really taken up you know, developing their social media presence that's either Writers Guild wide or specific to a workplace. So um, we're excited to sort of be, be in conversation um, with the broader movement. And that would be, yeah, one way to tap in and see to see what people are working on on a day to day basis.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, so we're creeping towards the end here. <laughs> I don't know why I said creep That was creepy of <laughs> me. <on> me. <laughs> I feel like because we were talking about like sexual violence, like I, because yeah. I also have like, you know, experienced that. And I guess my head was kind of in that zone. So anyway, we are heading towards the end of this conversation. Um, we just wanted to open it up. If there's anything else you'd like to say to our listeners, whether it's people who work within media or. People trying to help grow or support their own workplace unions, or just anything generally. Open forum. Closing thoughts. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I'll say. I mean, we're you know in the country, this we're a very low point when it comes to percentage of industries that are organized. I um I think I blocked out the recent statistic of percentage you know of unionized workers in the country, but I would say, but there are a lot of people out there who are not union members and may have never even thought about organizing their workplace. And, and you know, also say that, you know, I'm a union organizer as my job, but fundamentally I'm a labor organizer. And so I think also sometimes when we talk about unionizing, you know, what we're talking about is people coming together to support each other specifically in the workplace and, and take action to change that. And so I think there should be more union members. I think more people should organize their workplace, but I also think that sometimes people people come together and and take action that results in change that isn't a union right people people walk out of work people write petitions people stand in solidarity with a coworker whose benefits have been cut and so i think also just wherever people are at it's talking with the people that you share working conditions with just about what they're experiencing and thinking through what are the ways in which people can come together to change those conditions and sometimes that's that's unionizing but there's also a whole a whole universe of of options for people to support each other but fundamentally it it starts with that relationship building and so you know I would yeah that would be my plug is just talk talk to your talk to your colleagues talk to your comrades and and support
2: each other <laughs> I yeah that. i think that's i will I think that sounds good. And if, yeah, and like for just my part, like if you are in digital media and have questions about what a union would look like at your workplace, you can mm-hmm. totally hit me up specifically. Mm-hmm. DM's open. Um, <laughs> I will talk to you about it. So, Yeah,
0: amazing. Well, thank you both awesome. so much. I like can't even believe it. This hour flew by. I was joking with Katie that I had just like, gotten a 90 minute massage and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to hold myself together for this (laughs)
1: because
0: I was like a wet noodle essentially. Um, But this has like really invigorated me. I just started a new job this week and I'm like, I'm very grateful for the shift in employment and it's working with five other women. But even in that space, I'm like in a small nonprofit world how would this uh, conversation yeah.
1: go? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And
0: it's really exciting to think like of all the possible ways that you can have discussions about these issues. So mm-hmm. thank you both
1: so much.
2: Oh, thanks okay. for having Hi, us. Thank
1: you.
0: Yeah. Was super fun.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I really appreciate all the, especially all of you, right. People who are creating podcasts and doing the work that, you know, helps all of us get through, get through the day and, and make <laughs> sense of things. So really happy to be To be a part of it, yeah.
2: This was—I was like, when Megan was like, "Do you want to do season of the bitch?" and I was like, "What?" Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, I'm, I'm thrilled. Look (laughs) at it. We're thrilled to have you. That's our show.
0: As always, you can holler at us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Season of the Bee. We have an amazing website, seasonofthebee.com, that has some really cool yeah. merch up there right now. Oh, oh. Also, some of you snoozed and lost on those amazing season of the bitch caps. I think we have a couple with the lettering still, but better hop to it if you want it. I mean, Buffalo has a ice storm today, so just winter is never ending. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. <laughs> And slide us some yes. money on Patreon if you like what we do and want to support what we do.
3: Yeah. Or you can give us money if you don't like what we do also. We're okay with that.
0: Yeah. Liking is not a requirement of supporting. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, I love you so much, Hope. Thanks for being on this. I love you so much. Bye. 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 the bitch.